0: Welcome to the Property Experts podcast, where you'll find open conversations, no bullshit attitudes, and deep dive insights from award-winning property developers and business owners, Ben Richards and Jack Chiggins. Together, they've delivered over 40 million in gross development value over the last five years and have a pipeline of over 25 million to deliver in the next 18 months. They've built numerous other seven-figure businesses with six-figure net profits around their property ecosystem, and it's by no means been an easy ride. So on this podcast, they'll share their weekly trials and tribulations running multiple businesses, giving you never-before-seen insights into the inner workings of finding, funding, designing, delivering, and selling award-winning property deals, together with golden nuggets of advice through the five key areas of any business, marketing, sales, operations, finance, and talent. If you're a young entrepreneur looking to get started or have a small team, but you're looking to scale your business to the next level, this is the No Bullshit Podcast for you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this Friday's episode of the XP Live Expose with me, Ben Richards, and Jack Jiggins. We've got a fun-packed week and agenda today, starting with a bit of a, a letdown with one of our refinances, and we are going to be talking all about That and some things that you can do as plan Bs, plan Cs and things that you can put in place for contingencies. I'm going to be talking about some SAP and EPC learnings that we've gone through this week. Every developer should understand what's happening in this space and what they need to do in the next couple of years because it is massive, it is dramatic and it will add lots of cost to your project. So you need to fully understand how you can sort of reduce and minimize those costs. Why you should always draw up a heads of terms document, whether you're speaking with tenants, in Investors, you know, solicitors, securing the right term debt for your scheme, some insights into the conversations we've been having in our biggest scheme to date regarding utilities that's electrical, gas, water, and data, company organizational charts, and splitting responsibilities within your business. And that will become more and more prevalent and important the larger your company gets. So hopefully, you guys can learn from some of the things that we've gone through, the conversations that we've had with our non-exec director and the help that they've given us to kind of prepare ourselves for growth and to build the business that we want to build. Jackson, we're talking through some of his hacks in terms of posting documents. And then we've actually had like a few Q&A questions from our wider network and thank you very much jimmy kebe for some of your comments which i can see are already lined up ready to go which is amazing so we do try to push a preview of what we are going to be talking about on the friday live on youtube before we actually start and you can actually start commenting on that before we start so if you've got any questions whether we're live or not you can drop them in the comments below and we will try and address them. So welcome, everybody. So yeah, we've, we've been let down this week. We have since July been working very, very heavily with Yorkshire Building Society to refinance one of our assets. It was the property deal of the year. It's from an equity perspective and a value perspective, we've driven a lot of value into the scheme to the tune of 1.2 million pounds. And we've given pretty much our inside leg measurements with the wider portfolio of properties in terms of a We've jumped through hoops from an EPC perspective, providing them with relevant reports to show how in the future we can get it up to a C if ever those regulations came back in. And this week, after five months of deliberation and jumping through hoops, they've said they're no longer willing to lend on our asset. So, Just incredibly frustrating, really. I'm sure you guys have felt the same thing and been let down by a number of lenders. And I guess it is one of those things where, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, And we've had to now put, you know, move to our plan Bs and plan Cs to try and speed up the refinance, get that money back out, and move on to the next project. So, yeah, one thing I would say is to make sure you've got some secondary lenders waiting in the wings. And also that you factor in huge amounts of contingency in terms of timelines for any refinance, because, you know, this thing has already been going on for five months. And now we're to a certain degree back to square on.
1: Yeah, I would say that just for any other developers or investors out there, like sometimes you do get into a situation where you waste a lot of time on a process with a lender. And annoyingly, in this instance, they've actually pulled out for reasons that they knew at the very beginning. And these things do happen. And there's sometimes not a lot that you can control about their processes and what they're doing. One thing that we always get asked when we're speaking to new lenders or banks is, you know, what are we looking for? And time and time again, we're a small outfit. We don't have a financial director monitoring these things. I always say that we're equally process driven as we are rate driven. And what that means is these five months that we've wasted, it might have been cheaper to go with a more expensive lender. So to analyse that when you're going into lending, when it's development and bridging, we pretty much always pick process over rate. Because I do believe it's a fairly sliding scale, that the better the rate, the worse the process. And that's because a lot of people flood to that area of the market, want to be with that lender. But this is actually a refinance. So we're looking for a 25 year mortgage, five year fixed. And it's very difficult To go with with the process when it is such a drastic difference of cost, you know, we were with YBS. We're talking about five and a quarter percent. That's it, not above base. That's the all-in rate for a five-year fixed block product because it's fourteen flats, and that is attractive in the current market. Now we're probably looking at six percent. And that difference in 0.75 so 75 bits in cost will be you know almost 15 grand a year. So it's difficult to you know ignore those cheaper rates. I suppose one thing we could say that is a really, I suppose saving grace when you do get that down is Ben mentioned not only having other options available. We've got now two other lenders that, in my opinion, not far off the same pace as YBS were and messing us around to get to this point. But one thing that's really key is make sure that when you have a valuation done in the first place, that they are acceptable so that there are a more robust surveying practice that are likely to be on other panels, because then you can commonly get a rewrite of that valuation. So you're not wasting two weeks to get someone on site, another, in this case, six and a half grand and then another two weeks for them to draw the reporter. We're fortunate that we can push our our valuation over to the new lenders so that they can review that internally and and have a rewrite. And as a result, we have saved another month. And in reality, it probably hasn't wasted too much time in terms of where we were at with YBS if they went ahead and where we would be at with other lenders. So that's one way that we try and sort of prevent future happenings like this. But at the end of the day, it does happen especially when you're looking at a five-year fixed mortgage and you really like their rates and you've been messed around. Coincidentally, Ben, I don't know if you've noticed, but when we bought this site, we got rates, and we always do this, from a lender to refinance it at the back end. So we're in very different times now, and this was probably sort of two years ago, and the leading lender was Paragon at something like three and a quarter percent. So where we're at with YBS is we're now at five and a quarter, but that is as a result of base rate and the market changing. That's not necessarily because the schemes changed or because Paragon aren't that competitive. And now, guess what? We're actually running a process with Paragon, who we were initially discussing this deal with two years ago, because they are equally as competitive now as the rest of the market and can get this done pretty quickly. So that's what we're pushing forward with. But I suppose just to shout out there, if this
0: does happen, You not to waste time. It happens to everyone. Yeah. yeah, you have to suck it up sometimes. Um, I just wanted to say, before we go on to the next point, Jimmy, thank you very much for the comment. You asked, do you mind sharing your advice on stamp duty? Last week, you said you'll try to tackle this matter this week. So I'm hoping you'll be able to talk about it today. That was on episode 43. We didn't see this message. And to be honest, we forgot. So we will try and pick that up next week for you. But I did notice that you commented Last week also, and you can't really see that very well, but I'll I'll sort of give you the gist of it. We talked about some assisted sales um, that we've done historically. And you talked about there being a a Section 44A of the Finance Act says that you cannot have an interest in a property, otherwise you will be liable for stamp duty. With an assisted sale, typically what happens is that you are effectively the consultant. We are developers, but we are a consultant. And what we were saying is that typically when you run an assisted sale, there's no transaction, so there's no stamp duty to pay. And that additional cost is kind of you know shared between the homeowner and you as the, the consultant for sort of providing that service. Now, the key thing here is having an interest in the property. And as a consultant providing developer services to help deliver the scheme on a project management perspective and, you know, get paid some form of profit share at the tail end does not quantify you having an interest in the property. You're not on the property deeds. You're not on any of the debt or mortgage provisions. You've got no tie to the property. And that's really why, you know, that you're not liable to pay stamp duty based on running an assisted sale. Maybe we'll try and go through that in in a bit more detail. Another point, but I just wanted to sort of, One, say thank you for the comment and address it as much as I can sort of quickly now. And we'll we'll try and address it maybe in in full another time. Cool. Number two is all about the SAP learnings that we've learned this week or I've learned speaking to some SAP consultants. We've been running a lot of analysis on TAME, our new project, which will be 17,000 square feet of office that we're converting to residential. And we've also been running the same process for Colney Hatch Lane, which is a nine unit scheme conversion in Muswell Hill. Now, through this process, the latest SAP updates changed last year. Um, They were meant to make kind of electric heating a little bit better in terms of how it's perceived by the SAP software. But it's still so far away from where it needs to be. Um, We've been installing electric combi boilers in a lot of our schemes to date. And with the new SAP updates, there's absolutely no way that we're going to be able to kind of use those going forward unless we are introducing a shed load of PV. You know, we've insulated the property as much as we can and added other kind of energy saving measures into the scheme, because even with upgrading external walls, you know a kilowatt of pv for example we were still at around a low d epc rating with an electric boiler and i was finding it very very difficult to find ways in which sneaking it you know get getting it to sneak up above a c and this is all to do with the government's push towards the future home standards the future home standards will be coming in in 2025 and is a massive step up from building regulations today Building regulations were increased at the end of 2021, I believe. That was onerous in itself. 2025 future home standards is, I think, a 31% increase on today's standards. So unless you as a developer are starting to get to grips with how making your properties more airtight can help, how insulating them more, how utilizing renewable technology affects your SAPs and your EPCs, you're going to have a real shock when you get to you know delivery stage if you haven't thought about these things from a very very early stage within your design or your architect hasn't you know started to introduce these things we walked around a nearby office conversion in tame on wednesday and the agent said much to his you know dismay he was trying to push the architect to think more sustainably and get the units above a c because they're actually trying to rent it out. They are very lucky that the government has made a U-turn on the fact that EPC should be a C rating from 2025, because most of his units are a D or an E. So he's just fully fitted out a brand new fit out, looked sparkly new, spent a lot of money on that, that refurbishment, to find that if the government didn't make a U-turn in two years, they wouldn't be able to let those units out without upgrading to an EPCC, which would have been very, very difficult given the fit out that they'd, they'd already done. So I think just, I guess, word of warning for developers, understand you know how your architects are approaching this. Work with your energy assessors to really understand what can be done from an early stage to improve your energy rating. The one thing I would say is that gas boilers are still number one. Really, in terms of how effective they are in EPCs, changing from the electric combi boilers to a gas combi boiler jumped our EPC rating from a high E, low D to an easy B just by making that one change and nothing else. So, gas is still there. We've been reluctant to install new gas connections because of the cost. So, we've been trying to counteract that by installing electric boilers. But on TAME, we're going to be getting a cost to install the new gas connections and weighing up the cost, you know, cost benefit to the things that we would have to do to increase the insulation, to improve our sap ratings, improve our EPCs, if using just electric boilers and the capacity on the system. You know, these electric boilers are quite intensive. And, you know, it, there may not be capacity within the network, which means increased costs for extra substations and all that sort of stuff. So the cost of installing new gas connections may be far less than actually installing a new substation on site. So it is a massive thing that developers need to get to grips with. So um, hopefully that's a bit of a word of warning for you developers out there.
1: Got a bit of a fun insight when it comes to gas heating for anyone that cares. I was just in America and uh, staying around the in-laws in Palm Springs, where it's extremely hot. And I found out, I didn't actually realise before, I thought they had some sort of MVHR like air heating system. And it's literally winter there for like three days and then it's summer for the rest of the year. But they said that their the gas bill average per month to heat their house and do hot water is $14. So for everyone over in England, paying a a small fortune every month, I thought that would be a, a fun insight to what the life is like on the other side of the pond.
0: Good. So why should you draw up a heads of terms document? And I wanted to share really live on screen some of the things that we do here. So what do I mean by heads of terms document? So when we agree commercial terms with a joint venture partner or an investor, often you'll have key Commercial elements like the rate of return, the percentage profit share, the security they might, you know, you might be giving them all these key commercial terms that you've pre agreed. Now, if we went to a solicitor and said we want a shareholders agreement joint um, drawn up for a joint venture partnership with this person, they're going to go away and draw up a big fluffy document that probably doesn't give you everything that you need based on what's previously been discussed. Now, the, a lawyer is going to write in legalese. They're not going to know the commercial terms that have been agreed between you and investor. So you need to help them out because if you don't, they're just going to continue racking up more hourly charges to make loads of changes as you go back and forth between solicitors, between JV partner, between yourself to get to a shareholder's agreement and a you know, JV agreement that you're happy with. So what we always do is draw up a heads of terms document This outlines all of the commercial terms that have been agreed between you and the investor, outlines all of these, the security, the arrangement, the fees, who pays solicitors fees, what your solicitor contact details are. It's a document that is drawn up, is agreed between parties before any solicitors actually see it. So you know that the key commercial elements of your agreement are all written in a one or two page document signed by both parties that then get sent to your solicitors to then use as the basis of their shareholders agreement. Now, this doesn't just work for investor partnerships. This also works for things like commercial leases like this one on the screen. So we've just, well, I say just, we, we hope to sign up the sixth out of seven units in one of our office units in Reading as a office tenant. And we sent them this document to review. So instead of going back and forth over email with all of, oh, actually, I forgot to ask you this, or I forgot to ask you this, we've been through this loads of times already we know what office tenants are going to ask. So why not put it down on one piece of paper where we're talking about what term they have, if there are any break clauses, what the rental is, what the service charges consist of, how the utilities are structured, what deposit payments are there, what reviews are there within the lease. What t- like all of these things are the key things that the tenant is going to need to know. So what we will do is get these down on, on a heads of term document like this one. We will send that over to the other side. If they have any queries then at that point, we can address them and then sign them, send them off to a solicitor to actually draw up the formal lease for that office. And it just saves a hell of a lot of time and a hell of a lot of cost in solicitors writing up wrong reports. If you want some insight into those templates, as always, kind of comment below templates or click bit.ly forward slash XP underscore templates. And you can register your interest to actually get those uh, templates from us.
1: Yeah, so we have we have templates set up for heads of terms for investor joint venture partnerships. We have them set up for commercial tenants wanting to rent space from us. And we have these set up for also assisted sales. So if you want it, any specific, I think all, all of them, as Ben mentioned, reach out. And I think just to sort of summarise what Ben's pointed on there, your solicitor is there to legalise everything, not to negotiate all the negotiation should take place before you go into legals. Otherwise, you, your solicitor that should spend half a day pulling a lease together or pulling a shareholders agreement together or a loan agreement together or even you know the, an assisted sale document together, rather than spending half a day, they're waiting a week for the other solicitor to reply and then it gets complicated and they've only negotiate the first page because that was the first thing that drew their attention to it. So make sure you do all the negotiation And one thing that's really clear is it makes your partner or tenant or whoever it may be extremely clear on the parameters of the deal. What we've actually noticed from this is sometimes when you're commercially negotiating with a tenant that might be a new business owner, might have not done anything like this before, they kind of get put off when something crops up late in the day about it being a full repairing lease or having details that they weren't aware of. And you don't want to wear them thin on that part. You want to be as transparent as you can. And especially with commercial leases, they always say to us, how negotiable is the rent? I say, well, you sign a 100-year lease, it's very negotiable. So you kind of want to get the bigger picture and see what they're going to push back on so that you can adapt your negotiations as well. It's all well and good agreeing a rent, but if there's loads of break periods and if it's a short lease, and if they haven't really got much of a balance sheet Is a pretty risky tenant so negotiations is really important to have the full picture and understand what they're comfortable with what they're not comfortable with so that you can put the best foot forward to make sure that you can get the deal closed next one is finance and specifically buy to let finance exit finance hmo finance or whatever that may be it's sort of touching on the first slide which is how ybs let us down on our block refinance product and It's it's more sort of just alluding to if there's anyone out there that's currently looking for refinancing out anything, that could even be your personal home. If you are refinancing out anything within your portfolio, what you really need to be cautious of is the exact parameters of what lenders are pushing towards you. If you have a really good broker, I'm sure that they would do this for you and protect your interest. But to run through them, when you are refinancing an asset at the moment... Because back in 2000, and, well, back during the credit crunch, so we're talking sort of 2008 to 2010, government put certain stipulations on banks leveraging so high and they put parameters so that there's a rental stress cover, which means how much does the property rent for? And this is obviously especially specialty buy-to-lets. And then if it rents for X amount, what is the coverage for the mortgage? The reason that they brought out these parameters is to stop people going into negative equity or getting into positions where they can't actually sustain the mortgage costs. So it's all well and good and we appreciate that but the banks have been smart and the way that they've been smart is they keep their rates lower and they increase their arrangement fee for the mortgage significantly higher. So we've actually seen arrangement fees and we've discussed this before at 7% on some mortgages So what I would advise you do if you are coming to exit and and on a refinance is we look at a multitude of things. We look at the arrangement fee. We look at the rate. We then look at the annualized rate and then the annualized cost. And what we do with the arrangement fee is we divide it by how many years that you've got. You're getting that new product. So if you've got a three year product or a five year product, a 4% fee might not actually be that bad if you're running on a four-year product or a five-year product. So what we do is we compare those elements of that mortgage. So for an example, this is actually live terms for what we secured to replace YBS. So you can see Secure Trust, Paragon, Kent Reliance. Now, Secure Trust have a low arrangement fee of 2% but their rate is higher at 6.79%. So because we're locking this in for five years, we're gonna be con- conscious of the annualized cost. Now, what that means is at the end of the five years, how much cost have we paid out over the five years? Great, you can be attracted to the rate, but if the arrangement is higher, how do you actually quantify that? So it's a really straightforward scenario. You just put the arrangement the rate and then the annualized costs. And you can see here that Kent line has marginally come in at the cheapest. But on the face of the terms, it is still the cheapest. But we've seen where, for an example, let's assume Camp Reliance arrangement fee is 7%. It would not be the cheapest. And you'd go with one of the other options. Really simple process and definitely worth looking at. So we've mentioned the rental stress cover, the cost over term. Another thing to be really conscious of is the early redemption charges. I have never seen a market where the early redemption charges are where they are at the moment. I think our early redemption charges on the Paragon product are 5% in year one and two, 4% in year three, 3% in year four, and 2% in year five. Now, I don't believe that in five years' time, we're going to be m- much different from the rates that you can see in front of you. But in a year or two's time, I think they could be quite different. So one thing to consider is, would you consider a potential exit on that asset in a year or two? Make sure you know what the ERCs are. So another process you can do is actually look at exit year one, exit year two, exit year three, and total up the cost to run it to that point across the various lenders, because they will all have different ERCs, so early redemption charges. One thing I'd also recommend is early redemption charges are quite negotiable. The arrangement definitely isn't that negotiable. The rate is of 100%. They've, they've probably... Been through months and months of board of approval, credit approval, their funding line approval to get to that rate. There's a very, very small chance that you'll get that negotiated down. We actually got Secure Trust down from 6.99 to 6.79, but they couldn't do anything about the arrangement. But when it comes to ERCs, early redemption charges, make sure you do push back because all they're going to say is no, and you still haven't lost anything. But it gives you the flexibility if you do want to refinance or if you do want to sell the asset. You're not paying five percent at the rear end in eighteen months' time once you've already paid five percent at the beginning end and five percent per year. So something to be cautious of. Nice, good. Sorry
0: about those technical hiccups. So yeah, just one thing I wanted to touch on is um, splitting services. Now a lot of people are listening to this, investors, developers, whether they're doing commercial conversions or splitting houses into three flats or anywhere where you're converting, you know, a single unit into numerous units will at some point need to split electrical services coming into these these units. Um, And I just wanted to share our learnings this week with our project in TAME. The image that you see is probably four compartments of the building that we're converting. We're going to be converting each floor into three units. So what you see in front of you is four sections of the building, there'll be a flat on the ground floor, flat on the first floor, flat on the second floor in each part of those four sections. So 12 flats in total. Now, each section has a three phase incoming electrical supply. Now, when you're looking at these things, and you're thinking, oh, my God, I'm turning this into 12 units, I'm going to need 12 new electrical services coming into the site. If you had to dig up those 12 new services from the main road, all the way into each unit. It's gonna cost you tens of thousands of pounds to do that work. So we met our utilities consultant on site on Wednesday. Each section of the building is currently arranged for an office. Now the offices have three phase supply to each part of the building, which you can see on the image on the left. So I've sort of labeled, you can't really see it that well to be fair, uh, but where my, where my cursor is, these are three fuses on this three-phase incoming supply, so one, two, three, each, each fuse is about 100 amps. Now what can be done with these three-phase supplies, we were hoping that we would be able to convert or connect three new meters into that three-phase supply to cater for our ground floor, floor, first floor, and second floor apartment, and luckily that is possible Now, the added benefit, having spoken to our utilities consultant, because we were wondering about our landlord supply, i.e., you know, if if I'm thinking this three-phase supply can serve three flats, shit, what am I going to do about the landlord supply? What he said was there'll be no issue with actually including that landlord supply as a fourth supply coming off the three-phase incoming, i.e., there will be sufficient capacity on that cable to do so. So that was really great news. We were thinking we'd have to maybe bring in one new connection to cater for all of the landlord supplies. But actually what's going to happen is that each section of the building will just have four new metres, one landlord, one ground floor, one first floor, one second floor flat. And this is going to save us an absolute fortune. We don't have to contact the local electrical supplier, i.e. SSE or UKPN, for new additional services. We don't have to dig up anything externally which is massive in terms of civils works and costs and all we really need to do after the three-phase meter is connect our new individual meters for each individual flat into that three-phase it's what's called a bno network so we will be responsible for everything after that three-phase supply so you're any electrician qualified electrician will be able to come in and install those new meters for each flat so That's a massive win. One thing that we're now looking at is um, installing solar panels on the roof and figuring out how to split individual panels down to service individual flats. Because going back to the SAP conversation that I mentioned earlier, to get individual kilowattage from solar panels associated with each individual flat from a SAP perspective Technically, it has to be directly linked to that meter for the flat to be used specifically and solely for that flat. Now, I know there are a lot of developers out there who will be saying, well, just connect it to the landlord and then cheat this app. And I'm sure there'll be lots of people that do that. There are ways in which you can split it down. We've been talking to a solar company about using what's called micro inverters. So a micro inverter gets stuck to the back of each particular panel. And then each panel can then be directed via AC current to the meter and used within each flat. So instead of having a PV array that connects to one big inverter, each one can have a little microinverter. And then you can have the choice of saying, I want five panels to go to flat one, six panels to go to flat two, and only one panel to go to flat three, for example, because I've got a gas boiler in flat three and I don't need to com- overcompensate for the electric boilers that I've got in my flat one and two, for example. So a lot of complications with TAME in this project, but you know, it's it's fun to learn about all these new things and um, we'll keep you updated as and when we learn more. Company org charts. Yeah, so we had our meeting with our non-exec director this morning. He's been very keen for us to create this suite of documents, which I'm gonna talk through. And it is a company organizational chart and responsibility matrix. So effectively, looking at the bigger picture of your company and planning out each individual department, even if you don't have the department there, there is a function in the business that will be needed with that set topic. So what am I talking about?
1: I think it's worth pointing out that even in the early days when, believe it or not, it was just myself and Ben in the company, we still did this just so that each other knew who was doing what. So you don't need to have a team. I suppose the, the only time that you wouldn't need to do this if it's just one person, but it might be even still be useful to put external consultants in there to support you in those areas. But if you've got you and a partner or you and one member of the team, it's really important to have that clarity on what everyone's
0: doing. Yeah. And I think sort of the key thing here, we, we spoke about it a few weeks ago, I think in terms of whether you want a sort of lifestyle business where you just want to you know do a, do a bit of property every now and again and sort of keep it relatively small, or whether or not you actually want to have a bigger business, you want to grow a team, you want to build, continue to build, build a business around your property developments. And I think when you look at this particular column, which is our property development column, this is where most people start their journey, start their thought process around what they want to do and be as a property developer. All they'll really be thinking about is project specific information what's the acquisition process of this project we've got to go through the legals we've got to find a finance lender we've got to get through planning we've then got to go you know tender out to contractors build it and then sell it like this is where most people come into the development space because they're only looking at project by project by project now when you've got eight projects on the go at one time a team of 10 people numerous investors to deal with your business grows far bigger than just siloed projects specifically. And that's when you start to need to think about a group strategy around your business, who's going to be in your team to support all of the functions of the various team members, who's going to be looking after your you know property management if you're if you're holding some of the assets longer term? And that's where this organizational chart can really help kind of put the pieces together. And like Jack says, when we first started five years ago, Me and Jack were the only names in in each each of these boxes. And these boxes are are segments and pieces of each area. So just quickly going through them. So when you're at a group strategy level, you'll have roles and job functions in departments within that part of the business. So under group strategy, you're likely to have a marketing function. You'll be looking at joint ventures, which include investments. You'll be um, capacity planning. You'll look at your client-based management positioning within the market any new products that are coming on online, the culture of your business. So these are all group strategy topics. And then to support everything within your business, you're gonna have some IT function, you're gonna have admin, you're gonna have accounting and finance, human resources, legal compliance, office management, and that's all gonna be supporting the, the other functions within the business. The three boxes that we've got, so we've got the job function at the top, you've got then the person responsible, and then you've got anyone else involved. So although I don't necessarily get involved, let's say, you know I don't get involved in the build of our schemes, I am responsible for that build process and Stuart, our site manager, oversees the projects on site. You know, it may be that in the future, we actually have a operations director or a construction director that becomes their responsibility. The build will be their responsibility. So my name gets replaced with the construction director. So as your company evolves, this sort of group organizational chart will evolve. And we just think it's a great way of thinking ahead, structuring the growth of your business um, and putting some proper structure to it. And when you're out raising finance, like we're raising for, you know, 10 million pounds at the moment for an equity sort of fund into the business, this sort of thought process and proof that we've done this goes down so well with lenders, so well with investors, because they understand that you understand business and how things need to be grown to a certain size and accounted for to deliver on your business goals. If you're excited by some of the property developments or investments that we talk about on this show and want to know more about investing £100,000 or more with XP, email info at xpproperty.co.uk to set up a call with one of our team. We can discuss our open investment opportunities and provide you with our track record details showing with complete transparency, our historic performance project by project, and how you could be part of our growing pipeline of developments.
1: I think there's a couple of points that I just wanted to pick up on. The difference between responsible and doing is a a really key one. You evidently want to make sure that if, for example, I'm in charge of, let's look at legal, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm doing all of that, but I do sign it off and overview that process. We've actually brought that process into even everything down to our deal analyzers. We've got a tab at the top which says who's responsible for signing it off. Otherwise, everyone dives into it, tweaks some numbers, has a look, but no one actually fully signs off that task or that responsibility. That's one key point, which I think is extremely key. And just back to the point sort of reverting back sort of six years ago when Ben and I were in the, in the inception of XP Property and how we did build an organization chart just with us too, we see all the time where other development companies with partners and they basically do everything together and they do everything collectively. I think one of the reasons <coughs> for our success is of scaling the business from 0 million to sort of 40 million a year is purely down to that trust and divide and conquering the roles so that Ben is doing what Ben does best. I'm doing what I do best. I'm probably pretty rubbish at what Ben does. And I think he'll probably say the same or vice versa. Finding your, your flow in what you're best at and running with that and trusting that the other partner or other people in the team, if they have everything they do need, is delivering their part of the business, and that's really imperative to, to focus on if you want to scale a company and build a team that do the work essentially to grow the company with you. And I think, you know, we all, we always reflect on hurdles that we've hit. Whether it's, um, you know, I think we we tossed up everything that we've delivered to date, and it's approaching 100 million in delivery, and a lot of that is actually down to our team and letting our team run with what they're good at and what they need to do, and just helping them get to that point.
0: Yeah, cool. To accompany kind of this overarching org chart, we also have a responsibility and sort of job role section. So I mentioned kind of all of these headline things like marketing, capacity planning, client-based management positioning, but what does that actually mean? So to accompany that, that org chart, we also have a job roles and description template and a file, which basically sets out what those functions are are within the business what what role do they fulfill so you know for accounting accounting and finance this person or whoever's in this role is responsible for the finances of the business including adequate financial controls that are maintained and up-to-date they're responsible for ensuring that the financial controls are up-to-date for management information and report and formal reporting which will involve but not be limited to coordinating Mm -hmm. up-to-date bookkeeping producing management accounts together with the year-end accounting. So this document kind of supplements the org chart and just goes into a bit more detail about what the job roles and what the job functions are within the business. So if you're interested in, if you want that template, if you want to know how we structure our business, what job roles and functions we have, then again, sort of comment below and we can help you out with that.
1: On to our favorite topic. Yeah, this, just,
0: this is another Jack's Hacks, is it?
1: Yeah, I mean sometimes like i feel with these jack sacks, is it just common sense that i get really good feedback from them so so here we are we're talking about royal mail and posting so i try and keep it fairly brief, but i hope there's some value in here for, for anyone that's doing transactions and, and dealing with legals and dealing with lawyers trying to get deals done and it's just a, a few fundamentals that we stick to we've time and time again had documents sent and no one's received it Time and time again had to courier. We actually had one of our investors send his documents in an Uber once because we wanted to get it done that day while everyone was lined up. And that was the final element. But just touching on some fundamentals that we use for postage, and it's really super simple. And I hope you know if you think it's super simple and you're doing it, great. There might be people out there that just get one nugget from this. And I hope you know that helps their business. Um so fundamentally any documents that you have signed and signed and witnessed, and it's hard copies needs to be a very, very minimum of signed for Great, you could post it, post it first in class, but second class, but what we've had before is where they say they, you know, a bank or a solicitor has said that they haven't received it, and we actually have the name of the person that signed it within their office, that we can go, well, this person signed for it last Thursday, so I know you have it. And that's really, really imperative. Any documents that are in, legals, contracts, TR1 documents, shareholders' agreements, Make sure, even if you've got four months until they need to receive it, make sure it's signed for. So the next point is like speed of postage. We always just get everything within sort of as soon as availability postage as we can, because for the sake of six to seven pounds, it uh, normally saves us headache and time to get ducks in a row and move transactions along. And when we're buying a site, for example, we recently completed on a site where we actually got charged for a, a late completion, I think the cost was something like £350 per day that we ended up paying for, for that late completion. So the matter of that day really is negligible. And then the last one is to just don't be afraid to get a courier or even drive the documents yourself to the place they need to be because sometimes that's a really good use of your time to get that transaction done. So I hope that's useful, a bit of a whistle-stop one, but at the very minimum, if it's an important document, if you're not doing sign-for because you're a cheap ass and you can't afford an extra three pounds it's inevitable. It's going to hold you up, and it is. It needs to be signed for as a very, very
0: minimum. Nice. Yeah, I, I don't think no, your sacks are are very, very useful because people just. It may be common sense, but more often than not, people aren't doing it. So a reminder mm. for things like that is is always useful. So we asked a Q and A. Into our XP community group this morning. Just is anyone you know struggling with anything? Um, can we help with anything? And Dan Dan Brown asked this question. So he's looking at a property that's got PD permission to convert two upper floors to five times flats, but there's potential to go into the roof space for a third floor. What's the best stroke, quickest way of finding out how feasible, stroke likely it is to get approval for the first, um, for the third floor? And it's a difficult one because a lot of it will come down to If you're wanting to find that answer out yourself, it's going to come down to to experience and your understanding. But to give a a bigger picture about who can help you and how you can get a bit of insight, I thought I'd mention a a couple of routes that you might want to consider. So first one, if you wanted to go more more formal and get some formal understanding from the the council, you could go down a pre-app route, so a pre-planning advice application. Now, if you don't already own the property, or you're not in legals or you haven't exchanged, going down that route is probably futile. One, because it's going to cost you too much. And two, it's also going to take a hell of a long time. So I'd only probably recommend that if you've got that asset you know, secured, if you're in the process of buying it and uh, you need some actual sort of formal guidance because you control the property and asset at the moment. Second thing to do would maybe speak to a planning consultant. You know, we work with a number of planning consultants now that will give an internal, you know, an informal review on something. Yeah, just give them a quick heads up, the site address, maybe some sales particulars, some photos. They'll quickly come back to us with a bit of insight. If you wanted to pay them a couple hundred pounds, they can write a more formal planning report, planning statement just for them to spend, you know, a couple of hours. Having a look at local guidance, raising any red flags, telling you about any applications that are nearby that might be useful for you. And that's a way of getting a bit more of a formal approach from a planning consultant. Now, all of these things might be either more too expensive or too timely. So it depends how much time and and cost you're willing to put into it. Other thing would be to look, you know, speak to an architect that you work with, try to get their views on, you know, the design aspects of it how it could be designed to be less intrusive or blend in with the nearby properties, for example. Speak to other developers. So maybe get their view, send it over to, to some developer friend that you know, maybe done something like this similarly, get some insight from them. If you know someone that's worked in that particular borough, that council borough, for example, maybe speaking to them to get an understanding of what that particular council may view in terms of your um, this specific project. Check other planning applications nearby for any similar sites, similar developments or, you know, even better if there has been something very similar nearby that's actually been refused. You're going to have a checklist of all the things that you you are likely to need to do to actually get yours approved. So what hurdles you'll need to overcome will be in the planning decision notice with the refusal. So use that to your best advantage maybe even read local design guidance so there'll be supplementary sort of planning guidance and design guidance on your council local council website maybe have a look at look at their take on how these particular projects should be Mm -hmm. so often they'll have maybe some some icons or drawings that sort of show us it i don't know if this is let's say this is a parade of terraces on a high street so This particular one is surrounded by five story buildings, and this is just a three story building. Okay, well, you know, there's probably something in the design guidance that suggests that, you know, infilling between those five story high terraces is actually, you know, acceptable and, you know, appraised positively. And then that's good precedent for you to to follow. If you already have it secured and you secured it on the basis of that hope value, Maybe you can ask and negotiate with the seller to maybe reduce the purchase price because it still is hope value and then maybe add an overage to de-risk your purchase. Say, look, we based our offer on getting that third floor. We're not convinced we're going to get it. Would you accept the lower purchase price? But with an overage, if we do actually get it through planning so that you can crack on with the five units at lower level and then go in for planning with you know a, a de-risked purchase price beforehand, but I know that that's, a bit of a difficult one Uh, i mean hopefully that's been relatively useful if there's anything that you guys think i've missed i'd love to know down below yeah i hope i
1: hope dan kind of uh has success with this this site just a couple of things on this before we go on to the next slide one i think next week ben i want to do an example of however many different ways you can structure an overage Uh Uh, i think that might be useful for people we do it in multitude of ways on how we structure it per unit per square foot a percentage of square foot Um, percentage of GDV. I will go into detail about that next week on Friday. And then secondly, there is no there is no black and white clarity at the beginning of buying a site. Most sites that we buy, we do not know what we're gonna get. I actually got stung with my very first deal that I did on my own when I put my big boy pants on. And I was trying to convert a house in Reading to four flats because it's a row of 30 houses, all 29 Have been converted to four flats apart from my one and my planning was rejected and it's just an example of you never really know exactly what you're going to get there's a huge strength in de-risking it during the acquisition process to make sure that you can get your ducks in a row before you exchange so for an example on a permitted development scheme for the example the old maltings we were very confident that we would get permitted development rights to convert that to flats we submitted a fairly seamless scheme of 16 units and we managed to get the planning consent before we exchange. All about that timing, if we would have exchanged at risk and not got the consent, we'd be in a very difficult position because we'd be back to planning, maybe full planning, to try and overcome that issue. So there's a lot of work to be done on structure, but to some degree, you're never really going to know. So what I would suggest from an acquisitions perspective is you have to make some assumptions because your competitor will be doing the exact same thing. Get the contract on your desk and then throw money at planning consultants and and architects to work with you, to de-risk it for you. It's a process that you need to go through.
0: Yeah, very good point. I mean, even with my experience and, you know, the number of projects that I've done over the last 12 years, I'm still never absolutely 100% sure that we're going to get approval for things. You know, I have to use, to the best of my ability, you know, best of, of my knowledge, you know, an assumption of what I think we may get through. And I always say, with, you know, certainly with planning and any development stuff, the more money you spend, the lower your risk starts to become. And it's that curve that kind of crosses over. So you know, the more money goes up this way, your risk starts to come down because you're getting more and more clarity on what is possible. But sometimes you have got to you know, spend that money to start de-risking it um, and getting some certainty. I just wanted to say, Alfie, yeah, apologies. I just want to talk about our templates because we've been saying, you know, people reach out, you know, register your interest to download our templates. We've been very, very busy, and we've just taken on our new office manager, Christina. We're in the process of compiling all of these templates, putting them in a decent format that is, you know, usable for you guys, and trying to make them as best as they can be before kind of sharing them them out there. As as we said, we have so bear with us. We will get there. We just want it to be, you know, as good as they can be before sort of sharing them around. Long sesh today yeah apologies thanks for watching everyone as always if you've got any comments drop them below and we'll see you again next week at five
1: thanks everyone
0: these live q a episodes are all about helping you grow your business and build a property portfolio that provides financial wealth if you have specific topics that you'd like us to discuss make sure to comment on the platform you're listening on or email info at xpproperty.co.uk so that we can discuss your topic in future episodes And if you found these conversations valuable for growing your business, make sure to click that follow button. And we'd really love for you to tell just one person about us. Thank you.